Good evening. I'm thankful for the opportunity that I have to speak to you tonight, to present a portion of God's Word. A few weeks ago, Hugh came up to me, and he asked me to speak, and I, don't, I do this every time, especially when it comes on Sunday nights. I'm always looking for somebody to come up here and give my lesson right before I'm going to give it. So for the past few weeks, it seems like it's been getting closer and closer that we've had several guys kind of talking about the same thing. There's lots of overlap, making me just a little nervous. And then lo and behold, Hugh this morning takes a huge chunk of my lesson. <laughs> Not so huge. I wouldn't say it's over half or anything. And there's definitely some new points I'm going to talk about that he didn't focus on. Um, so if some things sound familiar, that's going to be why. But... What, the topic I've chosen tonight is not as the word of mere men. And I actually get that from a passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. I'm going to read this out of the New American Standard Bible. The rest of it will be New uh, King James, so if you're following along, just keep that in mind. But 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 tells us, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of mere men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. No matter what version you're going to read this from, you're going to get the same message. And it's going to be clear as day that there's definitely a difference between God's word and our words. But there's something in particularly I loved about the New American Standards uh, phrasing. It says, not as the word of mere men. See, that's the only version I could find that used that phrase, mere men. If you actually look that definition up, you're going to find that it means only. That it means we're only men. You may can even use a different definition and say that we're small. And definitely we, when we're comparing ourselves or anything of our lives to the standard of God, we're going to seem small. So this passage is telling us a couple of things. It's telling us that we're only men, but it's also showing us that there's an inherent value and there's an, uh, a reverence and a weight to God's word that our words don't have. There's a gravity and importance to it that no matter what we're trying to talk about, no matter the message we're trying to send, where we're delivering our message from even, we can't muster the importance of God's word. And when you think about it, that's an important aspect of a Christian life because our whole belief system is predicated on the fact that the words of the Scriptures and the words of the Bible are true, that they have meaning. Obviously, we know that the words of God and the words of the Scriptures should mean something to us. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm accusing them that God's Word doesn't mean something. But I think we can all agree if we look back especially over the past few years, there's been a general devaluing of God's Word. I think we see it mostly in society where we want to push God out of everything in our uh, everyday lives, but I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we've probably fallen prey to the same problem in the church. And I don't think it's anything intentional because we get up here and we still say it's the standard. We still say that God's Word is, are the foundational principles of how to live a Christian life. But yet, when we listen to our conversations, what, the things that we're getting worked up, against, uh, worked up about, the things that we're talking to everybody about, the things we get upset about that we argue over, I think we may can be honest and say that 
it may seem from the outside looking in that maybe God's word isn't as important to, to us as we like to think it is, or as that we say it is. Especially if you're talking about in the last couple of years. See, in the last couple of years, you know, there's always been conspiracy theories. There's always been these theories about what's going on in the world around us, but they've definitely increased in number, and I think they've come closer and closer to the church each time. And so there's so much focuses on these conspiracy theories. There's so much focus on are we being lied to? There's so much focus on is someone hiding something from us? Are our leaders trying to pull the wool over our eyes? But I think we forget about the question, where does God's word fall into our lives with all of this? 2 Timothy 2 and verse 16 tells us that we should shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Profane actually means worldly here in this sense. And this is a struggle in the Christian life just in general. We always try to find that perfect balance between being in the world and still keeping that spiritual mindset, going about our lives, but still making sure that we make the time and the effort towards God like we should. And then we also have the struggle. It is a blessing to be in this country for sure, but I think... We've been, kind of been spoiled in a lot of ways. We have a lot of religious freedoms, and a lot of what makes America great in our minds is the transparency we think we should have. We want that transparency. We want transparency from our leaders. We want it from everyone and everything around us. So when we don't have transparency somewhere in our life, we want to seek it out. That causes us to dig further and further so that we can find a version of the truth that we can tolerate. But if we, when we come up for air, or maybe we should ask the question, if we ever come up for air, how much time have we wasted away from God's word? Even if the version of the truth that we come to isn't necessarily conspiracy theory, it may even sound pretty grounded, we have spent so much trying, time trying to prove a worldly point of view to what end? No matter the answer we find, it's all a worldly pursuit and it's all in vain because of that. These things we spend our time and our energy will all go away in the end. And what are we going to be left with? Are we going to look back on our life and think that we're as knowledgeable as we wanted to be? Are we going to look back and say that we, at the very least we pursued knowledge and wisdom like we should have? Are we going to be as secure as we want to be in our salvation? What about how many people have we alienated along the way? See, as humans, we're known by our actions, what we profess to be. And especially, that's especially true as Christians. And especially, we are known by the things that we spend our time on. And if the pursuit of any other type of information takes up that need that we have or we should have for God's Word, we need to take a step back and reevaluate our lives. God's Word is the ultimate standard, it's the ultimate truth. And yet, when we're going about our lives, can people see that reverence that we have for God's word? Can they see or feel that sense of importance that we place on it? God's word should be valued by everyone that hears it, but at the very least, it should be valued by his children. Psalms 119, 103 through 105 tells us, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
I think this chapter is a pretty good resource for us to look at in the sense of how we should be approaching God's Word. Because in this chapter, you're going to find how uh, the purpose of God's Word in our life, the importance that it had to uh, the psalmist, but ultimately, it focuses a lot on our need for God's Word. How sweet are your words? They're sweeter than honey to me. Because I've learned your ways, I hate all other ways. Your light guides me in a dark time, and your light, your word guides me in a dark place. Have we ever thought about how much we cherish light in dark times? Like if you ever just get up in the house, you're going to the bathroom at night, and you didn't turn a light on, don't you regret that? I mean, you're stumbling around, even in a familiar place, you're a little nervous that you might trip and hurt yourself. What about when you go outside, you wish you grabbed a flashlight? And I think we've all made that mistake of going into a dark place, knowing it was going to be dark, and we didn't bring a light with us. How precious is that light? And for some reason, when I got to thinking about that scenario, it made me think, what does the world see in us? Do we look like somebody that's stumbling around in the dark without a flashlight? Because there's a need that we should have for God's Word. We should feel lost without God's Word. That's our standard. So are we devoting the time and energy towards it like we need to? Or are we getting lost in the dark without a light? I would love to spend a lot more time in Psalms 119. I think it's very useful for the purpose of this study. But because this is the longest chapter, I don't think we have the time to do that. So I'm just going to hit some high points of the first 20 verses on the, verse 5, it says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. Verse 7, I will praise you when I learn your righteous judgments. Down to verse 10, With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. 18, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Do not hide your commandments from me. In verse 19 and verse 20, my soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. Let's just look at some of these phrases that's used. With my whole heart I have sought you. I love that it asks that, oh, that my ways were made to keep your statute so I would never have to disappoint God. With my whole heart I have sought you. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Do we long to live and keep God's word? Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. He asked in 19, do not hide your commandments from me. And I think my personal favorite in this little section is verse 20, my soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. Do we crave God's word to fulfill God's word to read it, to take it into our lives? Do we crave it like this? Is that something that can be seen in our lives by the people around us? 
You know, the chapter goes on to talk a lot about how we are revived by God's words. No words of man can do that for us. No opinion of man can do that for us. Only God's word. And his children, at the very least, should see that value. Job 23 and verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. After all the struggles and all the losses that Job endured, he treasured God's word more than the food he needed to survive. Not just food in general, but his necessary food. Where do we go when we hit struggles that try our faith or when we hit a bump in the road? Do we seek out or do we bury ourselves in the truth of God's word or do we look for something else to pull our mind away and distract us? Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3 so he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. God wants us to see that we need him. He wants us to understand that his word is where we need to seek him out. We see time and time again throughout the story of the children of Israel and their journey to Canaan that this was a recurring issue for them and I think if we're honest we can relate to this we get so caught up in the here and now and all the things going around us and it's easy to get distracted with everything going on and then in the meantime we're so focused on trying to get things just how we like them and how we want them that we sometimes we may be forgetting the spiritual implications of the choices that we make. For instance, the choice to not go to God's word and supply that need that our souls have. I think we've heard, especially from this morning, that God's word is a special. It's unique. It's a valuable and reliable collection of information. And there are things about it that make it inherently more valuable than anything we as humans can muster. And even more so than the things I'm actually going to talk about because I'm only going to scratch the surface. But one of the things I want to discuss, the first thing I want to discuss about God's Word tonight is that it's eternal. Matthew 24 and verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. This life the material possessions in it, the news that we take in or are just surrounded with, the works of literature that we take in, the professions, the jobs we have, everything this life has to offer will go away in the end. But not God's Word. God's Word is going to stand the test of time and it will continue on forever. And that's something that no man can say about any work that's ever been put together on this earth. God's Word is also proved Proverbs 30 and verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Pure, as it is used here, means that it's refined. And that purity is that of a precious metal like silver or gold. And that pure word has been proven already, and that proven word of God is what can shield us if we put our trust in Him. And we heard Hugh talk this morning a lot about some works of men but they mainly focused on the religious aspect of life. And we can talk a lot about those shortcomings there, but I want to talk about some shortcomings in just the general ways of men outside of the religious realm. So I started thinking, and probably just because of the field I work in, 
the physician's desk reference kind of popped into my head. If you're not familiar with what's in this, it's actually just a big collection of information about drugs. And so these prescription medications, um, it has all their dosages, what they're used for, what they've been approved for, their side effects, um, and all things kind of relating to that nature. But let's consider a couple of things. Off-label use. If you've never heard of that, off-label use is when a drug is used for a purpose that it wasn't studied for and approved for by the FDA originally. And one of the drugs that is commonly predominantly used for its off-label use is a drug called gabapentin. It was actually originally studied for and approved for seizures. But then, I didn't read into all the, uh, how it was actually discovered, if there was a doctor that had the bright idea about it, but it was discovered that it was very useful in nerve pain and neuropathy. And so it was very useful in the diabetic community because nerve pain is something that they deal with. But even after years and years of this being the predominant use of the drug, I would say over 90, 95% of the time it's used for the off-label use more so than it's approved use. That drug is still not approved for neuropathy. It's still labeled as off-label. And you may ask, why bring this up? Well, as reliable as we may consider doctors, pharmacists, researchers, all the people that put these works of information together, they're not, they don't know everything. They don't know all the uses that could possibly spring from, this, from the drugs that they put out. Even if they're so confident that they have everything that they need when they put it out in the first place. But what about all we can uh, also consider is um, all the drugs that get pulled off the market too, get pulled off the shelves because they thought they had all the side effects that they needed. But there's sometimes comes long-term effects that come with those drugs. Like maybe they cause cancer. Maybe the effects far outweigh the benefits and so people stop using them. Maybe it didn't work as well as they thought. And so those get pulled off the shelves. And of course, we end up with another edition. See, what I forgot to mention is that this isn't its 66th edition. Obviously, new drugs, new information, new research comes out all the time. But a part of that is we don't know everything. Even in the field that it was designed for, it's not an all-knowing resource. The dictionary. I would say that's about as reliable as it comes in the English language because it contains all the information we need about spelling, the usages of words, the definitions of words, and it's a standard in education. Even probably once you're done with all your schooling, you still uh, reference it from time to time. But what about all the words that over time have changed definitions? Words that for years and years meant one thing. Maybe they were even a part of the language for over two, uh, a couple of centuries or so, and then now they have a new meaning. What about history? See, a driving principle of history is that we collect these records so that we don't make the mistakes of the past. Yes, it's good to, for the knowledge side of things, but we want to avoid making the same mistakes. But something that we need to consider is that oftentimes history is written from the side of the victor. America, in their historical view, is often on the winning side, especially when it comes to wars and battles and uh, conflicts. But what if we went to and asked another country that was on the losing side? Would they have the same account of how things played out? 
Would they have a different spin or a different agenda on what they're trying to present? I doubt they're going around saying America's great for beating us. We love them. I'm sure that's one of the last things on their list. And you can maybe think of some more. This is only just a handful that I thought of just right off the bat. And some of the information that you may, or resources that come to your head may be just as reliable, maybe even more so reliable than this. But I promise you, if it's a word of men, a collection of men, it's going to be flawed. There's going to be mistakes. But God's word doesn't have that problem. Its message has remained the same year after year, century after century, but does it get its due? Let's take our focus off of books for a second and just look at some general practices um, of men just out in the world. Maybe not. Okay, there we go. There we go. Let's look at some medical practices that are definitely not a part of our, or not common practice in today's world. Bloodletting is something that's still around from, uh, for some things. But bloodletting, it was common until the 18th century. I, didn't, I read that it kind of continued for about 2,000 years. So that's a long time. And it was kind of the standard for a long time for so many conditions. It, the idea of it was that they would put leeches on you. Of course, they developed other methods too, but they would put leeches on you and they would take the blood out of your body, not all of it. Um, but in that blood would be impurities and it would be intox- and, and toxins. And by removing all that impure blood, your body would be balanced again and you could maybe be healthy, maybe be cured from whatever ailed you. And it was overused for sure, but they come to find out that this is actually harmful in the vast majority of its uses. It still was used for some things, but now this was the standard and now it's been looked at as fake science. Lobotomies. That really wasn't all that long ago. But these were used to cure mental disorders, and this is actually a pretty barbaric practice, but it was accepted in the medical community. In fact, even with all the issues going on, it was used for 20-plus years. So the actual definition of lobotomy is the severing connections in the brain and the brain's prefrontal cortex. And I kind of got a little tickled at that language because if you've ever seen it, it's not like they get a scalpel and they just gradually cut it away. It's a pretty, it, is, it looks barbaric. What they did, especially at the beginning, was they stuck a, a rod up your nose right behind where they wanted it in the brain, wiggled it side to side to sever that connection, and then they would pop it back to separate the brain. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It, it is barbaric. But it went on for 20 years and people had side effects because lo and behold, if you uh, sever a connection in the brain, it could possibly make you brain dead and can give you all kinds of issues. But this was an accepted and approved medical practice for over 20 years. I think that could probably reveal something uh, beyond just the barbarity of it. Hand washing. I don't think we can think a lot about the medical community today without thinking about everybody's supposed to be washing their hands. You know, now we have hand sanitizer stations when you enter the room, when you leave the room, at the nurse's station, in the break room. Uh, The practice is every time you walk into a patient's room, you should wash your hands. And every time you walk out, you should wash your hands. And that's a huge part of medical 
community. But it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't a big deal. Hand washing just wasn't important back then. But then they did some studies and discovered that one of the major reasons we have people in the hospital that get these secondary infections or get worse while they're in the hospital is because people are, are not washing their hands. They're not clean. But now we don't want anybody touching us unless they've washed their hands. Let's look outside of the medical field. Let's look at some farming practices. I'm, this isn't my world. Um, I've been around it quite a bit, but it's not my specialty, but I do know that among some of the things that changed back in the time of the Dust Bowl, one of the major reasons that it took such a heavy toll, at least in this realm of dirt flying everywhere and piling up in places, is because of poor farming practices. So farming practices changed after this time and we, to account for avoiding a travesty like this again. Building practices those are expected code changes every few years because they know that things are going to improve. They're going to get more knowledgeable. They're going to know that there's going to be a better way to do something, so they allow for that. They allow for code changes that are going to make the building practice better. Regardless of if it's a word, a thought, a procedure of men, more than likely or definitely, it can be improved upon. Maybe it can be changed completely to serve its purpose better. But at the very base level, it can be made to be better. But God's words, his ways, don't require that. Psalms 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. His way is perfect, it's proven, and it shields us. What of anything of men's could meet that same standard? What of men's could stand the test of time even on into eternity? You're not going to find anything that meets that standard. God's word also proves disciples. Psalms 1 and verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. God's word proves us. The works and the words that we read of in scriptures are shown and made evident in our lives. And much like God's word is refined and as precious as a precious metal afterwards, we can be refined and we can be tested by the teachings given inside of it. This refinement and this testing can be seen in our lives. Romans 12 and verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do we ever give much thought to this transformation we should be experiencing? A transformation is a change within us. So in theory, in the context of this verse, we should have a new mindset. We should be a new us in another way of speaking. We're not pursuing the same things that we used to. We're not dwelling on the same things that we used to dwell on. And instead of giving our time over to worldly things and worldly pursuits, we're giving our time over to godly things. But what does it say is our purpose for doing all of that? It's so that we can prove the perfect will of God. So that we can be a light, uh, so that we can be the light that we need to be and bring others to that light. It's not for us to reach 
salvation where we've been baptized and then our conscience allows us to put God's will and his word on the back burner. You know, if you ever want to get a job done and you kind of shop around, you pick somebody, it's evident when they're not qualified to do what they're doing because their quality of work is not going to meet the standard that you had in your mind and it's not going to meet the standard that you set forth. And it's the same thing when we say we are God's people and we're God's children and we don't do the things he's asked and commanded us. Acts 17 and verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Like I've been mentioning, our reliance on God's word is something that can be seen in us. It was known at this time that the Bereans were a devout people. That they would be testing to prove what they were hearing. That they would be seeking the truth of God's word. They weren't testing God's word itself. They were testing what people were presenting God's word to be or what they were representing God's word as. Because they understood God's word was the ultimate standard of truth. What if we were reading a letter that instead was about the church of Plainview? Would it say something similar or would the content have to be changed to adjust? Would it say that, for instance, the congregation at Plainview received the word with all readiness to browbeat somebody into submission whenever they challenged their ideas? Or would it say that they often became furious whenever an idea that they came to possibly from God's word was challenged? and often searched for proof that the person presenting it was wrong so that they could feel justified again? Or would it say that the church at Plainview searched the scriptures to prove what was being said, that we searched for answers to help maintain the integrity of God's word in our own lives, and not to maintain some idea or opinion that we had? 2 Timothy 3, 14-17, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have to continue in the ways that we've learned. Why? Because we've learned them from God's word. We've learned them from God. We understand, at least in theory, that the scriptures are an inspired work. And we can understand that it's profitable for all these things that this passage mentions. And we can also understand that God's word should complete us. But once again, we see that the purpose of this all is for us to be equipped. Yet so often the things we are dwelling on, get worked up over, arguing over, they have nothing to do with God's word. We need to get our minds refocused and centered back on God's word, especially if that's something that we're struggling with. When I was coming up with this point in particular, it got me to thinking all the times I've gotten upset or um, frustrated or what have you in a spiritual discussion, whether... Or if I was sitting in church and I felt like an idea of mine was challenged. So I want to pose the same question that I posed to myself. If you ever get upset during a lesson or during a discussion or a study, um, and you found out that you might be wrong, are you upset or frustrated because you might have or someone else might have misrepresented the truth of God's word? 
Or is it the fact that our belief that we felt was based on God's word was challenged? And more importantly, what happens after that? Do we seek out the truth for our better understanding? Or do we go looking to bash somebody around for how wrong they are? We have a good example in Mark chapter 12 where the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they're, as they usually did, they came up with a scenario that they thought for sure was going to trip them up. So they go about this whole scenario and we come to his answer in verse 24. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? See, the Sadducees were a sect of the Jews that they denied the everyday involvement in God's, uh, of God in our daily life. And they also didn't believe in the resurrection or life after death. And that was a known belief and it was a known element of their life. And Jesus, in this moment when he replied, it wasn't, he didn't reply this way because he searched their hearts. He replied that way because he knew that's how they lived. He knew that's how they believed. And wouldn't that be crushing to think that we're on our way to heaven. We think we're about to enter into that gate and we hear the words, aren't you mistaken? Shouldn't you be somewhere else? If we claim to be a Christian, it's time to start devoting our time to his word. The things we learn in there will affect our behavior if we allow them to. And in turn, it should show to those around us that we are servants of God. The Word of God also protects and guards His children. Psalms 119 and verse 9, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your Word. How do we correct our paths? It's by listening and actually following the Word of God. By actually listening when it tells us to flee temptation. By actually listening when it tells us, don't keep your burden to yourself. Instead, allow your church family and your Savior who wants to help you to help. It doesn't say dwell on things of this world, especially to the point that no one wants to be around us, that we're no longer a positive influence because we've become so negative about what's going on in the world or we've tended to believe these crazy and outlandish things or conspiracy theories or whatever, you want, whatever reason you want to come up with. We follow God's word and that's how we get to where we want to be in life. Ephesians 6, 10-17 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of, of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 17 is telling us that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's a weapon that protects us when we're being attacked, surrounded, or tempted by the devil. And if you think about it, isn't that exactly how Jesus used it when he was tempted in the wilderness? He didn't go to the teachings of the world, to the beliefs of men, or to an opinion of men. He instead went to the truth of God's word because that was the only thing that was going to fend, the, fend Satan off in that moment. 
The power that's in the Word of God is something that Satan understands. He grasps that concept. And that's why he doesn't want us to rely on it. That's why he wants us to continue to dwell on matters we could never prove. On things that will go away along with the rest of the world. Instead, we should be following Christ's example that when we are challenged, we have a reliance on God's Word. But the way we get to a point where we rely on God's Word in troubled times is develop a pattern and a habit of relying on it at all times. God's Word also leads to salvation. James 1, verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. This point, and definitely my last point here in a moment, are ones that think are that cannot be done to any measure by a work of man. Whether it's a word, a thought, a collection of information, it doesn't matter. There's no work of man that leads to the salvation of the soul. Because if you think about it, any work that's done here on this earth, that's collected here on this earth, even if it's 100% accurate, it only deals in the physical realm. There's no benefit to dwelling on matters of the world, especially to the point that it distracts us from the divinity of God from the importance that God's Word should hold in our lives. And nothing should be pulling our energy away that we should be using and consuming on, um, on the learning and the application of God's Word. John 6 and verse 68. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. When given the choice to turn away and to not follow Jesus anymore because of the cost that they hadn't considered, Peter answers Jesus the only way he knows how to. Where else are we going to go? Who else is offering what you are? He understood that Jesus' words had more meaning than the words and the teachings of any other. That He also knew that Jesus' truth was absolute. Not just true for their time, but true in all times. And even Jesus, throughout his ministry, we see that he acknowledges the importance and the power of God's word. In fact, it was something that he wished that his apostles would be able to experience. In John 17 and verse 17, we see that Jesus says, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. In one of his final quiet moments before he's led away to be crucified, Jesus is praying for those closest to him, for his apostles. And he wanted them to be made holy by God's truth. So to achieve that ultimate goal of eternal life, we have to be made holy. And the way we get to that point is laid out for us in Scripture. We don't want to find ourselves in a position where we'll be judged negatively or judged to destruction by the very word that should be leading us to salvation. The last thing I want to talk about is that God's word also judges. John 12 and verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The standard we live by, the measure that we, or the standard that we measure ourselves up against is going to be the standard that judges us on judgment day. Don't you think that that word that's going to be responsible for judging us is not important enough to be thinking about, to be pondering about, to be trying to figure out the questions that we have in our own lives? Is that not worth putting away all those things that we love to get worked up about and sometimes can only be half proven? 
Don't fall into the trap that Satan's laid out before us. And that's not to say that we can't get information from other sources. But when the things that we seek outside of, the, of God's truth are what our conversations keep going to, or what our minds and our thoughts keep going to, that's something that can be seen, and that's something that can be measured. Even with the best of intentions, just from pure ex- uh, the, the amount of exposure we have, these worldly thoughts and things we dwell on, they affect our beliefs, they bef- affect our behaviors, and they affect our thoughts. And sometimes we may look back and we can't relate to the person that we were before. Or maybe we can't relate to the mindset or even why we started going down into that rabbit hole. God's word is truth through and through. And the love of truth should be evident in our actions and our lives. Hebrews four eleven through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are exposed in the eyes of God tonight. So where does that leave you? Have you given the reverence? Have you given the time? or the energy to dividing God's truth? Or do you devote what's left after you've given it to the other things in this life that won't matter on Judgment Day? John 6, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. See, earlier we read in verse 68 where Peter gave his answer, but before that, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching them and telling them that if you eat my body and you drink my blood, you will have eternal life. Well, they weren't understanding the spiritual implication of, that, of what he was teaching them. And because of that, they were visibly upset. When Jesus sees that, he gives them the choice to walk away. But along with that choice, he also makes the statement, the words of God are life. Jesus did lose disciples that day. People walked away from the truth of God's word. And you, we may look at that today and wonder why. Why would anyone walk away from something so valuable? Well, I would argue it's partly, at least, because the words of God were not life to them. They did not allow them to be life to them. They didn't allow the word of God to work in their life. See, the fact of the matter that we have to face, and maybe that we struggle with a lot of times is that we can know all that the scriptures contain we can know all the meanings of the parables that jesus gave the teachings in the old and the new testament the lessons from the letters to the new testament churches we can know the history and the applications of the old testament to our own lives we can know the parallels between the old law and the new law we can even know all of the prophecies and where they're located about a coming messiah we can know all of that but it's not going to mean a thing if we haven't allowed God's Word to work in our lives. Just like when we talk about God's Word can be a shield to us if we trust in Him. If God's Word doesn't have that importance in your life today that it should, or the value that it should have in your life today, don't walk away like some of those disciples did. 
We're going to offer the invitation here in just a second. And if this is something that you struggle with, with putting God's uh, word on a high enough pedestal that it needs to be in our life, that this is the ultimate standard of truth, if that's something that you struggle with, ask for help. See, the church here, the leadership here, your brothers and sisters here, we want to help if we can. But we can only do that if we know that there's a problem. So don't walk away from the opportunity that you have if you need that. Also, if you've been sufficiently taught and you'd like to be baptized, we can help with that need too. Whatever your need or struggle is, please come forward and stand uh, as we sing the invitation song.